look around you. Everywhere you can increasingly see the ideology of number go up. Trying to solve racism? Well, let's rig the demographic proportions. Want to increase national growth? Well, we've got just the thing, GDP. Trying to increase national security? Well, let's dump some money into contracts. And if the results of these policies are any indication, this obsession with an increasing number has given us disaster. But how did we get here? Hi hi, welcome welcome, this is Metapol with me, Cactus, demystifying politics, media, and culture for all who seek a rational way out. In the past few decades, we've seen a convergence towards metric-based ideologies, ones that look at simple measures that can be affected by policy and set as a goal. On the conservative end, this takes the form of free market fundamentalism, a type of libertarian ideology that seeks for increased GDP and lower regulation. The argument is, as long as this metric, which is supposedly tied to overall prosperity, is going up, then the economic circumstances of people must be as well. There is some value in the metric of GDP, at the same time it's incredibly flawed. One notable one is that destruction often increases GDP, because more has to be produced. If you have a hurricane strike a town, then the rebuilding will actually signal an increase in economic productivity, even though, quite obviously, the circumstances of the people in that town are much, much worse upon losing all of their homes. However, this has allowed a simplification of politics. It allows you to brush those problems aside and focus on the metric, which is what presidents from the Republican and Democratic Party have done since approximately Ronald Reagan when this really took hold. This was shared by Bill Clinton as well. However, the Democratic Party took a sharp turn towards partially the left and partially derangement. And here's what I mean. One component was a reaction to this overdominance of libertarianism, instead going towards social democracy, increasing welfare states, and supplying economic programs for all Americans or for the poor. This is everywhere from increasing the welfare state, creating more benefits during COVID-19, or a push towards more government funding of healthcare. I'm going to leave this issue specifically up in the air, because I think that there are some problems in which economic intervention from the government solves, and some when it doesn't. And I really don't have any problem with a left-wing party supporting left-wing ideas. When this really becomes self-destructive and misaligned with overall goals of the country or even of democratic voters themselves, however, is the most recent turn towards equality of demographics, policies which I have often criticized 
as being incredibly xenophobic and anti-immigrant. This includes seeking the equality of demographics in every sphere of life, whether it's universities, whether it's boardrooms, etc. This ignores key factors, like immigration. If you have high-skilled immigration that sources from around the world, and you can be for or against this as a policy itself, but know that this is a policy that exists, then because more than half of the world consists of people who are Asian, you're going to have more Asian immigrants. And the places that those immigrants end up, namely universities or high-paying jobs, are going to skew towards that. This nativist approach towards protecting the demographics and enforcing them through the rule of government is simply discriminatory. There is no other way to say it, and those who are supposedly on the left wing in the United States seem so willing to ignore this blatant racism. However, one notable thing that drives the adoption of both these types of policies, as well as the more social democratic as well as free market essentialist ones, is that they all revolve around a single numeric goal. One that can be put wall to wall in any partisan media or campaign office. What this means is that that metric, one that seeks to be optimized, that seeks to change the rules of the game around it, can be instilled as a fundamental goal. In the first two cases, this has been codified into things like the Department of Commerce or the Department of Labor, and in the last, HR departments around the world often are forced to collect and use these metrics. However, what's wrong with this? And at least, how is it any more wrong than politics as usual? After all, these types of self-destructive ideas don't necessarily arise because of metrics. And as I've often advocated for, the metrics can actually be used as a way to reduce reinforcement distance, to actually hold politicians accountable for their promises. The question isn't whether politicians should be held accountable for their promises though. The question is whether what's measured is actually correlated to what is good for the public, what those promises are actually aimed to achieve. This is emblematized in the backlash towards free market fundamentalism. On the right in which trade and which national security based on those economic levers take more of a forefront concern, and on the left, where distribution becomes something that fundamentally matters, where not only is the national number desired to go up, but also that that overall growth is distributed towards all classes of people. Both of these ideas speak to a misalignment of values, that the metrics that were put into place to try to achieve and measure goals don't actually connect to the overall goals themselves, and often are used in order to forward premises, in order to hide ideologies that are actually more interested in corruption. Not only that, but you also get an unfortunate casualty, 
of issues that are simply unmeasurable. These are truly cultural and not necessarily social issues, ones such as national unity, overall behavior, political integration, and religion. There's no simple way to measure any of these issues in a truly productive way. Complex systems, of course, are very noisy with regards to inputs, we'll get to this later, and, and can be difficult to tell simply by the metric of, say, religiosity rates or even vote counts and polarization, exactly what problems people are facing due to specific issues. This has also led to oversimplifications and caricatures of almost everything else that remains to be debated. This can range anywhere from abortion to race to free speech, where often the caricatures on both sides actually become dominant within the party, where absolutists and activists who represent the most extreme position and often an extremely unpopular position even within a party themselves come to dominate due to polarization, due to a lack of willingness to criticize extremes and extreme willingness to criticize the supposed opposing side. We've already talked about this frequently, and this obsession with metrics may be one further contributor. Finally, an important aspect is the codification that I've already briefly mentioned. This comes in the form of social media metrics, of broader marketing as a whole, and of the so-called HR state, the hiring and legal procedures that have to be dealt with in order to run a company, in order to run a nonprofit, a campaign, etc. This creates a dominance of metric-focused thinking, and you can add universities to the list as well. The enforcement and desire of metrics in each of these areas often come from a good place, once again, that desire for accountability. But as we've seen in many circumstances, institutions, particularly institutional funnels, points in which lots of information is passed through and dictated, are prime targets for corruption and capture. What this means is that exactly those portions, exactly those that are setting the metrics, are the best places for corruption to stage an attack. What happens after that? Of course, a caricature of a goal, one that is completely non-self-reflecting and disconnects from reality over time. Not only that, but you have a veritable measurement issue. If you have that easier reinforcement, even if it is semi-corrupt, then the idea, the dominance of a topic, at the very least in the short term, can be genuinely higher than that of topics that truly cannot be measured, that may hold weight, but is impossible to see the direction that a policy that gets implemented would actually affect. Then the decision problem and the campaigning that goes behind it tilts heavily towards exactly these metric areas, particularly if your campaign staff 
is trained in that same marketing style, one that heavily obsesses over exactly these metrics. In other words, the crossover between marketing and political campaigning and governance incentivizes metric-based ideologies. These types of functions can, of course, also lead to insularization. We saw this exactly in new reporting, at least as of two weeks ago, by Ryan Grimm on the internal struggles of the Bernie Sanders presidential campaign, in which disorganized and insularized young campaign staffers almost sabotaged the entire campaign due to their own personal desires, particularly in the time in which it was most important for Sanders, leading up to Iowa and New Hampshire, the first contests in order to decide whether he would be the nominee for president. You can find the full story online. The overall signal here is that metrics end up being exactly the funnels, exactly the points of power centralization that we talk about when we describe insularization. They end up being most susceptible to capture, and that the overall simplistic and faux-scientific aesthetics that metrics can help one present can be a grave problem. Now, of course, it's time for some self-criticism as you can't talk about metric obsession without having a look at the channel itself. I've talked frequently about the importance of statistical information as necessary in order to confirm a broad trend. I still stick by that standard whenever that evidence exists. It comes in the context of dispelling false narratives, in preventing narrative warfare. Metrics are flawed, but they are excellent at disrupting and debunking false stories. If you want a narrative to succeed and convince anyone of its truth, then you have to have evidence to back it up. And here's where the emphasis lies and where the self-criticism comes in. Just because a metric exists doesn't necessarily mean that something is justified for sure, that skepticism has to hold, and you can't just turn off your brain because there is something that tangentially seems to connect. This is probably the number one lesson of the turn to metrics and of the patterns over the past few years of this effect. Not only that, but there are vital systems that are incredibly noisy, that are complex, cover multiple variables across an entire nation, that can't be measured by one selection of data points. That doesn't necessarily mean that those issues aren't ones that have to be covered. And if you've looked at the selection on this show, then you can probably tell that I stray away from those episodes, simply because I don't know what to tell you about them. I don't have any extra information because it is so difficult to connect. However, I will be sure to try to cover those stories in a way that is insightful, in a way that can give some type of understanding. 
even if the system is noisy and complex. That is a promise that it will make going into the future. However, I do think Metapolitics differs from many political shows in the way that these ideas are addressed. First of all, exponentials are categorically different, and focusing them actually gives you insight. It gives you the ability to actually unravel some of those complex systems. That is one factor that I'm so driven by, particularly when it comes to the issues of insularization, a puzzle that seems to be increasingly difficult, ranging from anywhere from politicians to campaign staff to researchers. None seem to have an answer, and this model might be the best alternative. Second, exponentials actually do have a strong rationale for being as dominant or even more dominant than either existing metrics or broader unmeasurable ideas. That is because of both their practical impact, you can see the wide-reaching tentacles of insularization across all of American, if not world, politics, as well as having the steepest growth rates, by definition. Finally, Metapol serves a unique niche. I don't expect you to only be listening to the show, and I expect you to be able to find those alternatives that do cover those complex systems that do cover issues that I don't elsewhere. And that is the thing that lifts a lot of weight off of my chest. One more idea I want to cover today, and there's no solid evidence that it's true for sure, but it seems to be lining up with what's happening so far. It's an idea that I've been intrigued with ever since I read the book by George Dyson, Analogia. In it, he describes the return to incomprehensibility, the idea that over the past few hundred years, the human race has existed in a strange Goldilocks zone, a zone that is just bright enough for us to understand what's around the world, for us to understand much of the world we interact with, but has not yet exposed more chaotic dynamics that we don't understand. This includes emergent technologies now, with things like artificial intelligence, biotechnology, and one of the main things that I cover on this show, network effects, which are all incredibly incomprehensible, complex, and multifactorial. Ones that we simply don't have laws or models to describe. In other words, there's a lot more science to do. It's just that we existed in a brief period where we didn't recognize this. Moreover, it correlates with the idea that the metrics we've had in the past few decades are becoming increasingly irrelevant, as these new emergent phenomenon become more present, more dominant, and more impactful. This is certainly an intriguing, but also terrifying thought that many of the models that were distributed to help people understand ideas that they didn't have first-hand experience with may become increasingly useless in the face of complexity. And that's just what I want to leave you all off with today. The idea that we might be entering a world that is much more complex, that is much more difficult to navigate, but that might be something new.
one thing you can do that I would greatly appreciate is share the show, particularly if the ideas today or on any episode really intrigued you. It's the best way to help. I'm committed to avoiding financial pressures and not making any money off of the show. And so, the best way that you can contribute to its growth, contribute to the spread of better, of more veritable ideas, is simply by hitting share, hitting subscribe, leaving a review. All of these things can boost our reach. And if you like what you hear, then that would be greatly appreciated. As always, if you've helped us out, or are helping us out right now, then thank you.